If you're a Londoner, then you're no stranger to this. So it's no wonder that increasingly we come to appreciate the spaces that allow us pause, refresh our spirits, or simply let us relax. One of the natural advantages of this national park city is its generous proportion of green spaces, and the borough of Hackney is no exception, with nearly 60. In only a matter of metres, you can go from curbside to countryside, and in moments, the city slips away. This is Hackney City Farm. It's a space enjoyed by the community, schools, families, not to overlook an abundance of well-fed brunches for over 20 years. And it's here, past the overexcited children, a little beyond the geese. The chickens and the sleeping pigs passing carefully through a pair of gates. Inside a curiously weathered and many-windowed shop that we find Jack, a young man at the heart of a very social venture. So I'm Jack Agnew and this is Get Loose. It's the package-free shop that we've set up here at Hackney City Farm. All of the food that we sell here is organic. Package-free, organic. So far, so East London, I hear you cry. But this business has a little more to it. Welcome to Dolstonia, the podcast where we get closer to the people and the places just off the ginger line. Each episode, we take a topic and run with it, wherever it takes us. This week, it's a land of homogenized milk and honey. So stay with us for some organic encounters from deep within the borough. It is a social enterprise and we're trying to make it more affordable. So we're trying to bridge the gap between affordability and good, fair, sustainable food. It basically means that you can shop without disposable packaging. When you come into the shop, you can bring in your own jars, you can bring Tupperwares, an upside down hat or a ukulele case, wherever you fancy filling. Well, we are in Hackney. Uh, we can weigh that on the scale, zero the scale, and then you can put your lentils, pasta, nuts, pulses, dried fruit, whatever you want to do. Package free means of course that barring some more liquid exceptions, items do not come pre-packaged. The question is, why? It's a way of reducing your packaging footprint. It means that you don't have to waste as much. It means that energy is saved from the packaging being produced in the first place. And then there are the more immediate benefits for the community, such as economic. It helps on cost as well, because when you buy a 25 kilo sack of oats, it will work out loads cheaper for certain, so it's competitive in that way. Environmental. Plastic pollution, that is a thing that's on people's minds quite a bit. And then there's the increasing cost of landfill. So the more that 
residents of the local area shop here and don't use packaging means that less waste is then being sent to landfill, which in turn is a saving for the council, which in turn can be a saving for the residents. A local shop with the long-term goal of benefiting the community. It's a simple idea with far-reaching consequences and it's bringing people together in unexpected ways. For instance, when it comes to sourcing goods, Jack has had to reach out to external suppliers, some near, some far. One of them is called Lockervore. They're a social enterprise based in Glasgow. We get the pastas, the almonds, sometimes some dried fruit from them. Then there's Infinity, which is a co-op. Uh, we get a lot of the kind of rices, uh, nuts, dried fruit, um, lots of the oats and muesli and couscous and stuff like that from them. And there's the farm in Eastbourne and the dairy in Bath, providing fresh produce that's hard to source near home. So we've got um, unhomogenised milk, which is a bit of a rarity in London. Um, we get that directly from the farmer. So they drop it to us on their way to go into farmers markets. And with the cheese, that comes straight from the farm as well. Other goods are just a tube right away. And we've got some fresh herbs um, and some salad. They both come from a social enterprise called Audacious Veg. And that's a farm that's based in Hainault on the end of the central line. And then there's the food that's right on the doorstep. These figs and plums come from a local Hackney garden. The blackberries down there were foraged. And Jack is not alone in wanting to make the most of his local resources. Down there is like the Hackney Preserve section. So there's a fellow called Aidan. He is a very talented chef. He's worked in like really good high-end restaurants. And he's now devoting his time to food that is grown and sourced in Hackney. So cucumbers and the courgettes, both grown in this garden to make those pickles there and the chutney. And we're using jars that have been uh, reused, so he sterilizes them. And you can bring in jars and then we send them to him to be sterilized and he fills them up with local goodies. The blackberries and apples he's foraged. And then you've got the Hackney garden honey, which is uh, made by a lady called Amanda. And this is Amanda Hayes, someone you don't want to forget. Just keep a mental note. Who lives just around the corner and she's got a couple of aviaries just off the Queensbridge Road. So a five minute walk from, from here. Um, or a, a three minute bee fly maybe. So how did all these individuals all find each other and begin to work together? The answer is organically. I went into a package-free shop in Ishtown and the manager of that told me about Lockervore, the um, wholesaler that's based in Glasgow. I work for Growing Communities as well, which is a local fruit and, fruit and veg organic box scheme. A lot of the contacts I kind of met through them. Um, Aidan just popped into the shop. Um, Aidan introduced me to Amanda, who is the honey lady. People um, who are on a similar kind of sustainable mission, if you will, seem to help each other out. Jack describes a form of activism around the shop. It now has 16 volunteers, people who are manning the tills or lending their specialist skills free of charge, an accountant, a retail designer who's coming in personally to build shop units. There's also a research team looking to source the best and most local foodstuffs possible. But before all of this came a humble idea. I approached Chris, the farm manager, um, 
about the idea of selling a few nuts and grains and pulses to the growing communities customers that are coming in here to pick up their veg bags. And he seemed really happy with this idea and he liked the sustainability aspect of it. And then it kind of grew a little bit. And then the idea was that we would make a social enterprise out of Get Loose. A social enterprise aiming to turn a profit and benefit the community made possible with a focus on something other than short-term gain and some unexpected generosity. We don't have to pay rent um, until at least January. So it means that we're able to just work on providing a really quality kind of shop uh, for the community um, without any financial pressures, um, which has just been like an amazing gift, really. I can't believe the luck that we've had. And visitors to the city farm are already reaping the benefits. So it's been really good. We have loads and loads of uh, customers who uh, get very squeaky when they come in. And like, oh my God, I can't believe that it's, this is the perfect shop that I want. Um, and it's only around the corner. And uh, that's really nice. Jack is working hard to achieve that all important tipping point of sustainability. It's, it still needs to be kind of like three times as busy as it is now in order to self-sustain as a social enterprise. But um, things are picking up and getting busier and busier every month. Um, so yeah, hopefully we'll reach that goal. And I think it'll be like a really happy day for me when I'm able to hand over the rent to Chris um, so that that money can then go into supporting all the good work that the farm does, um, all the projects that, that um, the farm has going on. Um, the rent can go to supporting, to supporting that. And Get Loose Foods is quickly becoming a staple of Hackney City Farm. From Wednesday uh, to Friday is a great time to come in because you can get um, an organic fruit and veg box from Growing Communities, a non-profit organisation um, that will give you really nice seasonal food. And you've also got Soul Share, and we're all in the same kind of location. Soul Share is just two doors down from the Get Loose shop, um, and they uh, work with um, UK uh, fishermen and then super fresh fish and you can pay, it's like a box scheme, it's like a London uh, fish box scheme. So it's turning into like a little uh, local food hub, like a good food hub. By striving for a local, sustainable and affordable package-free shop, Jack is trying to fulfill something that's so often missing in urban life, a commitment to community. The shop and its neighbours on the farm are becoming a social hub a space to gather, get fed, to enjoy nature, and for people to minimise their impact on a fragile planet's resources. And step by step, little by little, people meet and the word spreads, and attitudes hopefully turn to action. And in a world where it sometimes feels that selfishness has won, a small shop with a fresh start is no small thing. As we've just heard, a shared mindset, chance encounters and a common goal are powerful factors shaping community. And just a few hundred metres away from our last story... Or a, a three-minute bee fly, maybe. Amanda Hayes tells us of another group working together in Hackney. 
her honeybees. So what I did was I got a copy theatre set and a compass and I did a circle round our house and I measured out to where the bees would go to so they could get as far as the Olympic Park from here. Dalston to Stratford may be just a hop on the ginger for a human but just imagine what it's like for a bee. Instinctively, they like to keep things local. It's known that bees will forage as close to the hive as they possibly can. They normally go two or three miles radius, and if they were really pushed, they might go four or five miles, but, you know, they'd have to be desperate for that. And Amanda has quite a few wild creatures in her care. Height of the season, you'll have about 60,000 bees in one hive. People are always amazed by that. When I ask them how many, they, they look aghast. But that will go down to about 20,000 in the winter. And that's just one hive. Hackney City Garden has four. And getting fed and surviving city life requires a lot of organisation, and not just Amanda's. Bees, as we'll see, are a regimented society with thousands of members sharing a common goal, survival. And ruling over each colony, a queen. Or then again, maybe not. People think the Queen rules the hive. She doesn't. It's the worker bees who control the hive. It's a democracy of some sort. And they, they are a super organism, which means that they act as one creature, even though they're all separate creatures. So the Queen really is only a sort of egg-laying machine. So she's like the sort of the, the, the sexual part of an animal. She's the the ovaries and the egg and then that part. So who exactly is running the hive? It's the workers who send the messages around the hive. They bring messages back to say we know where the best nectar is and they do a little dance and they tell the other bees where to go and those bees go and find it. It's, it's hugely, hugely sophisticated. So yeah, they decide what they want to do and they boss the queen around. So being Queen Bee isn't all it's cracked up to be, but she is still vital. Once the Queen dies, the whole colony is lost. That's the end of, end of colony. So each time you look in the hive, you have to check that there is a Queen. And if you don't see her, as long as you can see eggs, eggs hatch into larvae on the fourth day. So if you can see eggs, you know there's been a Queen in there in the last three days. So it's probably all right. As mother of the brood, she brings life. And whereas her subjects may die in months, her lifespan could be three or four years, long enough to leave and start over if need be. She's also physically different. Yes, quite different. She's bigger, although when you're looking for her amongst 60,000 bees, you can't always find her. And some of them are a bit, um, how can I put it, shy is one word that's used in terms of bees. They just hide. Some people can actually just pick up queens, but I'm always terrified of damaging them. They are such precious creatures. And if you buy a new queen, it costs you about £45 plus postage. And uh, no, before you ask, not from Amazon, but yes, through the post. You have to get them from a bee breeder. They come through the post in an envelope with some other bees. They're retainers in a little tiny box. I know, it's, it's unbelievable. Keeping tabs on the Queen is a must, and so it's easier to spot her if she's been tagged. And for that, there's a trick. You have to put a little Queen cage over the top, which is a crown of thorns, as some people call it. It's like a threads in a crisscross. And you put it over and press it down over the Queen and into the wax. 
the worker bees will walk out between the prongs of the crown of thorns. And some of them walk in, of course, so that's not very helpful. And you just do it as quick as you can. And then you just put a blob on the thorax. You mustn't get it on her wings or on her abdomen um, because that could damage her and any damage to the queen. If they think she's damaged and can't function, then the workers will kill her. But if the queen is in rude health and the season is right, then a hive and its inhabitants will be hungry and looking for food for both now and leaner times. And when it comes to foraging, bees, like many Hackney residents, are particular. They have these scout bees and the scout bees, these workers, so they will go out and they will find a good source of whatever it is. That whatever is a flower. Once singled out by a scout, only the nectar and the pollen from that type of flower will be collected for the next three weeks. That one bee will be faithful to that plant. They don't forage lots of different flowers. For each scout and its followers, a new type of flower. That's a lot of bees and a lot of flavours. And get this. The way that each scout communicates the locations of the flowers to its co-workers is by doing a dance. Yes, and it indicates to the others exactly where that saucer of nectar is. The bee with the intel performs a sort of figure-eight routine. It waggles its bottom. It's called the waggle dance. A waggle dance. And the left or right motion of the shimmy and the angle from the perpendicular include directions with the sun as a reference point. They say if you go left, right to the sun, go two miles this way, you know, a few yards to the left, you'll find that plant and that's where you should go. And they do it. It's clear that Amanda is fascinated, knowledgeable and passionate about her insects. But why exactly did she decide six years ago to take up the pastime of beekeeping? I had a, a PA and she and I were sort of talking about environmental issues and all the rest of it. And then, I don't know, somehow or other we got involved with bees and then she gave me a book and th one thing led to another and over time. And then I thought, oh, well, I'm going to stop work. What shall I do? And I thought, oh yeah, I have some bees. And I naively thought you'd just stick a couple of hives at the bottom of the garden and then round about the autumn, you'd just go in and get some honey and that would be it. But they're such hard work. Because nothing about maintaining a superorganism, it seems, is easy. Really, really hard work. In the season, which is from about, depends on the weather, but say late March through to September, you have to look at them every single week. Certainly in the early season, because I can't afford to have my bees swarm and annoy neighbours and cause havoc. Especially when you're an urban beekeeper. Bees will swarm if they're overcrowded. And when Amanda says swarm, she means half the hive, 10 to 30,000 bees upping sticks with the queen and looking for a new home. And that is too crazy even for Dalston. When they take off, it sounds like an F1. Really noisy and it's a huge black cloud. I've seen them in other places. You can see how many houses around, if they swarmed, it could upset people. Basically, they'll do it to multiply. They split. So the old queen leaves with the flying bees um, and the new queen will hatch and she will then be nurtured by the house bees, the nurse bees. They're not particularly dangerous when they swarm, actually. 
because they're not protecting any honey. But you should be left with half a hive. So you have to check them every week to look for signs of swarming and then deal with it. Standing in Amanda's kitchen, I'm able to see some insect handiwork, or perhaps mandible work, that is astonishing. Well, this is a super box which is full of frames and these are the honey frames and I took them off the hive yesterday and if you look at it you can see all the wax cells and they've been given a wax base in a wooden frame. This honeycomb, slightly staggered on either side of the foundation wax for strength, is a series of interweaving hexagons so geometrically perfect it could have been made by a machine. But it was the bees that did it. Yep. They're really beautiful. And sometimes, if you've left a space in a hive, the bees are very precise about what they call a bee space. And that's the, the, how much working space they've got and, and space within the hive. And what they'll do is, um, if you leave a hole, if I forgot to put that frame back into the into the um, super. When I come back again, they will have built their own wax inside there, freeform. Um, it's quite beautiful, but it's very annoying because it just blocks everything up. But no, if it's a big space, they'll just fill it up with wax. So where does that wax come from? The wax is produced within the bodies of the more mature worker bees. It's produced on their abdomens between there's sort of little plates when you look at them, there's sort of lines across them and it's, it's pulled out and it's, um, I suppose it's a bit like, dare I say, earwax that we produce in our bodies. Well, they produce their own sort of wax. And then when you, sometimes you open up a, a hive, you can see them hanging together, all the bees in a little chain. You might have got, I don't know, six or seven bees in a chain and what they're doing is they are passing these plates of wax between each other and then they chew them up with their mandibles and then they use it to begin to build their wax comb. So what exactly is honey? Honey is nectar collected from flowers and it then goes through the digestive system of the I know it sounds disgusting. Basically, it's bee spit. You'll get over it. It still tastes great on toast. And the bees take it into their honey stomach. They then bring it back into the hive. They regurgitate it. I know, it sounds awful. And then onto their tongues. And then another bee will take that droplet from the tongue of the bee. They pass. That's another way of communicating. Um, and then they pass it and put it into a cell and they sometimes move the honey around the different cells as well as trying to evaporate it out. And so, to summarise... So you've given them a frame, you put wax on it, they build a honeycomb, they fill it with nectar, yep. they evaporate water... Naturally, by fanning the cells with their wings... That then turns to honey. Yes, because it, there are chemicals within their, their bodies as well. It's, it's slightly more complicated, but yes, honey is incredibly stable. They found it in the tombs of the pharaohs, and it was still edible. Not that Amanda would ever sell 2,000-year-old honey. When I sell it, because of the EU regulations, I have to say, you know, use by date. So you put, you know, three years hence. But I know if I, if I put a bucket in the cellar, and it, A, it didn't get too hot, it didn't get any 
air in it. it that's important. It didn't get wet because it's hygroscopic. It does take water in. If it was kept in a perfect condition, I could find it in 20 years' time. It'd be perfectly edible. But getting back to the hive... So in its frame, once the honeycomb's sealed off by the bees, yep. that's then honey as we know it. Yes. So how does that now that get taken and processed into, into honey in a jar? Some honey I do sell in comb, but that honey, I do not put the same wax foundation in it because that wax foundation has got wire in it uh, and no one's going to want to eat that. Plus, the wax that you buy is probably a bit chewy. So I encourage the bees to naturally form the comb, which I use for cut honey. And for honey in the jar? Most of it, I put it into a large stainless steel drum, centrifuge basically, and you slot the frames in. It's incredibly messy. My husband goes out for the day if I'm doing it. You only extract those that are capped with wax on the top. If they're open and you can see all the um, nectar inside still, then the bees have judged it's not yet down to the right level and there's too much water. Because there's another complication. If you extract that, there's a chance that it could start to ferment in the jar. Now, if you're making mead, that might be good news. But if I'm selling honey to people and it starts to ferment in the jar, they're not going to be happy. So avoiding alcoholic honey... I take the wax off both sides of this comb, I pop it into the centrifuge, I turn the handle and it comes whizzing out and it then hits the sides of the drum and runs down. I then turn it round and do the other side. And finally, after weeks of effort from bee and human alike, we're still not finished. In the drum, you've got a load of honey. I then put it through a very coarse filter. Put it in a settling tank to allow any air bubbles that have been um, introduced into it through the process to come to the top. And then you literally just turn the tap, fill up the jars. And so it is, with diligence, effort, and not a little anxiety, that Amanda moves honey from hive to jar, some of which will make its way down the road to get loose foods. Local produce made by thousands of humble Hackney residents for the wider community to enjoy. A long and fruitful process, but one with many pitfalls. As we've heard, being a beekeeper is a commitment. Well, I've been keeping bees for six years. I studied bees. I went on a course and, and helped other people for a year before I got my own bees. And if anyone's thinking of doing it, you know, being a beekeeper, I would really recommend that because you need to understand what you're taking on. But in the end, rewarding. It's absolutely fascinating and really fabulous. But it seems to have totally changed your life. It has, yes. Which is good because I had a very uh, demanding and, and busy job and I needed something different. Although at the moment, at the end of this bee season, I'm beginning to think I'm, I'm looking forward to the months when I don't have to go down there and um, sort them out. There's a lot of cleaning up you have to do as well. They're really sticky and, and mucky little beasts. <laughs> There's a personal satisfaction for Amanda in the upkeep of these fascinating creatures. But there are also other benefits. The presence of wildlife in the city is a boon for both her family and friends. And the wider community also sees an upside. 
So it, it, in a very real sense, your bees are actually pollinating some of the local produce. Oh, absolutely. And quite a lot of beekeepers in our association are members of um, allotments. So that's the link for them. They want to keep bees because they want to have their fruit and veg pollinated. And so on the allotment, they have beehives. So if bees are good for us, what can be done to encourage them? If we could have more trees in the environment, apart from the carbon dioxide processing, etc., um, that provides forage for bees. They like simple flowers. They don't like complex flora, you know, things with lots of petals. They need to be able to get in there and, and get at it. And they love herbs. So I say to people, the simplest thing you could do, if you had only a window box with herbs in, it would be good for you because you can make your food tasty and um, the bees and other insects it's not just bees it's other insects as well that pollinate they'll enjoy it they are completely fascinating and nothing gives me more pleasure than sitting in the garden with a glass of wine in the evening watching them come and go and you can learn a lot just from watching them just at the entrance you know how, how many are moving whether there are drones coming in, uh, what they're carrying, whether they're carrying pollen, whether they're carrying nectar. Uh, you can see the different coloured pollens coming in. It's amazing. You've been listening to Dolstonia. A Lartig Limited production. A huge thank you to our guests, Jack Agnew of Get Loose Foods and Amanda Hayes of Hackney Garden Honey, for their time and insights. Music for our show, including our very own theme tune, Kingsland, was composed and performed by the super-talented Elvers. More details about our contributors and social media links can be found on our website, dolstonia.com, or you can email us at dolstoniapodcast at icloud.com. This is your host, Jason Cummings, signing off. Catch you next time with more from the people and the places from just off the ginger line. <laughs>